Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I think it's so important as well just to get back out into things. You know, when you're cooped up, it's not good for you mentally or physically. So, can't stop when it's out again. Rather than the whole Zoom call, where there's like barely any connection between anyone. So you're looking forward to it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. yeah. a bit of normality. <laughs> I have been going into work myself all the way through, but I do, I do have some friends that are. I've been working from home, and it's funny, I was speaking to one this morning, and he's looking forward to meeting meeting people in person again. Is he just saying that, though? No, I don't think so, to be fair. I don't think he is. I think he's genuinely looking forward to, to meeting up with colleagues. Whilst he said it, it, he will probably work more from home going forward than he did previously, but he's looking forward to meeting people in person. I think they need to get back to normal, definitely, and everybody needs it. I think the shops need it, and the coffee shops need it, the restaurants, don't they? Everybody needs to get back so to normal. So those sandwich shops in the urban centres and the office centres they need it yeah I think so definitely definitely because if, if nobody's in the offices then there's nobody having lunch or they aren't out so it's a back to normality you welcome it I hope happy. so yeah I hope so safely I suppose Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever met somebody for the first time who you immediately felt a strong connection with and thought that is crazy? Well, maybe and just maybe it could be explained as a past life connection. Does everybody have a past life? Yes. Yes. So so the way growing up as a Drew, as a Drew's person, we believe, you know, the soul is eternal. The physical entity, it diminishes, it perishes away, but your soul is eternal. And there's different, you know, religions that believe in um, reincarnation and they all have their own theories. But what we believe is as soon as the entity, the physical entity dies, the soul is put in another physical entity to live on. And there's a lot of epigenetics and DNA involved where if something traumatic happens or there's profound emotions left on a human being, they carry this with them. They might carry bad habits Um, like smoking or substance abuse. They might have irrational fears or um, phobias that they carry with them. There's a lot of times, um, I'm sure it's happened to you in the past, where you meet a stranger, a complete stranger, and right from the start, you either don't, there's something about this person that you just don't, can't see eye to eye with, or you absolutely love. Mm. And that's like a soul recognition, kind of. Our soul recognizes other souls that we've encountered in the past. And sorry, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so I was just wondering: is is there a limit then uh, in your own work on yourself? How I, I, is it just Neba, or are there many, many previous lives? You oh, have? there are many previous lives. So the, I always had the question: Why did I go do this? And why did I meet Neda? And it wasn't until I was in Los Angeles and I started getting um, certified in Reiki healing and mindfulness, and that I was introduced to past life regression. I never knew that there was a tool for healing behind all of this. I just thought, oh, there's reincarnation. And that's the part that really struck out to me because I felt I caused a lot of pain by re-entering Nada's, um, Sada's life. Whereas the healing aspect of it is you're able to access past parts of you that still leave a profound impact on you in your current lifestyle. And once you realize where they stem from, it's easier to break those patterns or be able to address that, okay, this is no longer happening right now. And um, it kind of disconnects all that. I've experienced over 15, 20 past lives, and those were a bit more profound than my another experience because they mm-hmm. taught me a lot more about why I am the way I am, the people that I have, including my own mother in this life, my brother, I've experienced past lives with them where, you know, and I've experienced a past life where my current brother and I were soldiers together in a war. And and our relationship during then 
was very similar to what it was like now. And, and my relationship with my mother, I've experienced the past life hundreds of years ago in China, where my mother was my mother as well. And are you always a woman in the past lives or, or can you be a man too? No. See, that's the, that's the part why I say, you know, this is more of a spiritual belief than a religious belief of mine, because um, in the Druze religion, they do actually believe that if you're a woman, you're always a woman. Mm-hmm. But they also believe that the soul has no gender. So there's a bit of contradiction there. That's why, you know, I say I'm more spiritual because there is, the soul doesn't have no gender. You know, you mm-hmm. can't place a, you can't limit that to that to that type of um and i believe no we always come back as we have masculine energy and feminine energy and we all embody that now but we experience all to kind of feel the whole experience of what it means to live a human experience and and the, the, what you would describe there where you know you you were with your mother and your brother in previous lives is that mm-hmm. common do, do people tend to kind of bunch together with perhaps cl- close people in our life now that those yes. people kind of tend to always have been together Yes, absolutely. So once I started doing my own research and I started reading, uh, Dr. Brian Weiss was an amazing author. He's actually a psychiatrist from Cedar sinai in Miami, and he has a book called Many Lives, Many Masters, and it's about a patient of his that he started doing past life regression with. And from there, I started reading a bunch more books, and there's so many case studies and Edgar Case books and case studies that have been done from the 50s, 60s, 70s, in, um, from America, from Europe, of people that grew up in Christian households or you know non-believers of reincarnation that they'd have similar stories. You know, in the Western world and where I grew up, when a kid was talking, it's like, oh, that's his imaginary friend or that's her imaginary friend. Mm. And sometimes if you listen to more deeply, there's there's messages behind it. And there's a book where there's so many case studies where kids came back to same family members. They, you know, they were either a grandfather that passed away and came back as someone's son to deliver a message or help in healing or break a pattern or... Crikey. What an interesting lady, alternative therapist, Heba Reedy from Moncrief. Lorcan is on the line too. Lorcan, you're going into your second uh, second year at University of Limerick. Um, how difficult has it been for you to try and find a room? Hi, how's it going? Um, yeah, very, very difficult. Um, I've been looking for the last two or three months and um, I'd be, um, you know, I'm, I'm 28 years old, so I'd be a mature student or whatever. Um, and I've been looking for just as long as everyone else and haven't found anything at all. It's, I, I send out hundreds of emails and, and messages every day and I, it's rare that I get any response. And as the rest of the guys were saying, you know, if I do get a response, usually it's, uh, oh, yeah, you know, the ad said 120 a week or whatever, but now it's going to be 150. And sadly, there's people out there that are, you know, willing to pay that or whatever at the moment to, to, to secure the place. And there's even lots of um, lots of scams and stuff going around as well. People taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of people out there that are um, that are that are desperate for a place okay. to live, really. So and um, is this bidding war? Is this typical? Is it common, Lorcan, when looking for college accommodation? Well, like I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's common because this would be my first experience of it. You know, as the guys were saying last year was bit with, with the lockdown and that a lot of people moved down for a week or two and. Uh, and then you know the colleges closed up or whatever, so it was um, it was a bit of a waste. But you know, there's no there's no reason why there, there there's more people looking for accommodation this year than there would have been in previous years. You know, it's not like UL have taken on an extra couple of thousand students or anything like that. So I, I don't know to be honest what the issue is with with the accommodation, but there just seems to be hundreds of people looking and. There's um, there's just not enough places there. Really. Mm. Uh, Neve, have you experienced this bidding war? Um, I mean, I've definitely, yeah, I've experienced the kind of sending out uh, hundreds of emails over the last few months and rejections and then prices being raised on places that were originally advertised for cheaper. Um, I think people kind of, they see the demand for the housing and then think that they can get away with um, charging insane prices for properties that are just kind of not up to standard at all. Because Limerick has always been, uh, you know, a student city like it's it's not that the university is new to, to Limerick so it's interesting that of, of the, the four callers we have on the show here at the moment three of you are all trying to get accommodation in Limerick so I wonder is it that is it that so many people have moved back there during the pandemic that there just isn't the same availability? Yeah I have no idea um, it's yeah it really feels like a mystery because it always seems like there was housing in Limerick even thinking back to this time last year 
um, I had friends looking for accommodation around this time and they all got housed. Um, whereas like a, one year later, it's like completely different scene. Um, Barry White, our reporter, was actually talking to another student in Limerick just about this very issue. So, yeah, I've been looking for accommodation all summer and I couldn't find anywhere. Like mo- a lot of my friends have accommodation. They're sticking to rooms they've stayed in for the past few years. But um, I, I, I moved out of my last accommodation uh, a good few months ago. So now I'm looking for somewhere to live. I'm looking for somewhere in the price range of about 700 euro, which like that seems to be the average for a house. But it's really hard to find a house right now. Um, so if I can't find a house, I'll have to be forced to go to student accommodation, like one of those, um, like a parvo or something, where they can pay up to 1.2k a year, or sorry, a month just to stay there. Um, but yeah, it's I'm finding it really hard right now. 700 quid for a room in a house for a student just seems absolutely unbelievable. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. On Saturday, Off the Ball explored Paralympic sport in Ireland. Here's John Duggan. How have attitudes changed towards Paralympians now, Orla? Are they being recognised more as elite athletes as they should be? Yeah, I definitely think that um, it has changed over the years and changed for the better. Um, I know, you know, when I went to Beijing, I, I would have got a few comments about, um, you know, you're off to the Special Olympics and you're, you know, you're trying to correct people. No, actually, it's the Paralympics I'm going to. Um, but then I think when London happened in 2012, it was so close to home and it was so um, accessible for people to be able to watch because obviously there is no time difference um, and I think people just got so interested in our stories and how like you know everyone is at the Paralympics um, because they have a disability and there's a story behind that disability and I think people really like to hear those stories um, and they see athletes competing now at such a high level um, at such competitive events I mean anyone watching Ellen's event there the other day they would see how close she was between gold and silver um, and how exciting it can be um, so I definitely think that attitudes are changing and, and people see Paralympic athletes now for the elite athletes that they are. And people have changed in the way they speak as well. It's not uh, people almost saying the wrong thing, Orla, uh, meaning well, but saying the wrong thing at times. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I've often heard the phrase, like, um, Usher, aren't you great, you know? Um, And I'm wondering, like, are you telling me that? Because I'm a three-time Paralympian that has multiple medals from major championships. Or are you telling me that because... I have a disability and I got up this morning and I'm getting on with life, you know. And I hope that it's for the, the, the first reason, you know. I hope it's it's for the, the getting to the Paralympics and, and winning the medals. But I do think that that is improving, you know. Um, and I don't think people um, see disabilities and, and disabled people as being so different now, whereas now, you know, um, you want to be treated the same as everybody else and, and to have no difference, you know. John, over the 29 years since Barcelona, have you seen a change in attitudes and a, a progression of the movement, uh, as Orla is saying there? Absolutely. The, in terms of, of, firstly, the progression of the movement, the Paralympic Games just continues to get bigger and better. And the standard of competition just continues to grow. And what it takes to compete at that level, it, you know, becomes harder and harder. Um, so that that's great, great way to see that. Now that brings its own challenges for the Paralympic movement, but it's great that that it's it's building momentum in that way. And then I suppose have I seen changes in attitudes? Yes, I have seen changes in attitudes. Or Orla articulated it very well. But but you know, it, I, we still, I, 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 most of my friends, we joke about it. The inspiration porn um, that people, you know, to, still I have still come across those comments that that the attitudes are that that people, you know. Still think you're great for, for just doing what everybody does. Um, so we've still got a bit of work to do in, in, in the broader context of, of, of changing that. And look, what Paralympic uh, sport does in that context is it celebrates disability, but it also celebrates ability. So it breaks down the stigma, it breaks down the, the perceptions, and we start to have the conversation and people begin to realize 
that that maybe their attitudes are old and and that they they need to change. So yeah, definite progress being made, and the movement is getting really successful and really big. Um, and and that's what we want compared to what 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 I saw first time twenty nine years ago. It, it's it's a completely different landscape. You speak about the inspiration piece there, uh, John. Was that in any degree patronising? Oh, it is patronising. And oftentimes, people don't intend it to be patronising, but, but but they do. Like, I oftentimes would be, would be come across people who with well-intentioned say things to me like, you know, I don't see you, I see your wheelchair. Oh, sorry, I don't see your wheelchair, I see you. And while, while that's very well-intended, what it's inferring in there is there, there's some stigma or there's some negativity uh, associated with the wheelchair or the disability. And that's the type of thing we need to break down. Um, and that's what 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 the parasport does in so many positive ways. It celebrates the disability. It's in there. It's it's part of who we are. It doesn't define us. But it's nothing to nothing to to, to be hidden away. Nothing to be considered negative. But then it celebrates the ability, and then it celebrates what people can do, and it, it it showcases that. So so from that point of view, then you can you can change that mindset, and that's the part that Paralympics Ireland and the Paralympics sport can play in the overall context of of, of the changing the attitudes of disability. John Duggan, Orla Barry and John Fulham from Off the Ball. Does that actually mean that there is a time bomb coming, whether we like it or not, but maybe not for the re- the reasons that we think it's coming? I, yeah, I think you've probably said something really important there, Mark, to be honest, that it is exactly that. It's a very complex situation. There are people who have never struggled with mental health before who have found this pandemic period extremely difficult. Think of people who are living alone, who were extremely isolated, experiencing high levels and prolonged periods of loneliness. And loneliness is very serious impact on mental health. But again, what I would like to see, while we are all aware that this has had a huge impact, and it would be naive to say, oh, it's not really an issue, but I don't read that as what Paul was saying. I think what we want to be getting out there is, if this is you, instead of sitting there going, well, it's inevitable that I'm going to have this terrible experience, I'm going to have this really challenging time, Let's get services resourced so the narrative can shift to if you're struggling, here's where you go. This is what you do. These are the steps available and there are services there to support you because then it won't overwhelm anybody. Then I know I'm having a problem and I know exactly where I need to go and who I need to talk to about it and that those services can be responsive in the first instance. That's the biggest fear I have is that services are so overwhelmed at the moment can we be as responsive as we need to be, as we want to be, for people who are in the throes of struggle? Um, do you worry that, that people who um, experience, you know, normal daily anxieties um, will mistake them for serious mental health issues uh, due to the kind of language? Now, I'm not saying that they're going to make um, 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 dramas into crisis. But because uh, um, they've been locked down, because they've been cut off, because of this uh, narrative that surrounds it, that actually they're feeling uncomfortable and anxious and it is looming larger in their head. It's magnified by virtue of the fact that they're dealing with it on their own and they're encountering it everywhere on the news and the social media. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, what we look at with anxiety in particular, just taking that one, is the context around it. Having some degree of anxiety, you know, while it's never pleasant, can be normal. And this is something I talk about with adolescents all of the time, that some degree of of anxiety is normal, not pleasant. You still need support. You can still talk to, to your support network about it. But it's not something we look at clinically. And I'm Speaking specifically, and look at the the kind of context we're in. If you're anxious in anticipation of exam results, for example, that is context-specific anxiety. When you get the results one way or another, that anxiety will lower, lower, dissipate because the context has shifted. It's transient. You know why you're anxious. You know what you're anxious about. It's the anxiety that is more pervasive, that isn't context-specific, that is there more often than it's not, that you don't really know what you're anxious about. Sometimes you're anxious because you're anxious and you don't know why. It's having a pervasive impact on all aspects of your life. 
that is something that we would look at as an over and above level of anxiety. When we think about this COVID period, this pandemic period, that is a context. So if your anxiety is very specific to the pandemic, we know why you're anxious. That doesn't mean you don't need support, but it is something that we could be working through, uh, you know, maybe in talk therapy, maybe in some other structural informal support pieces now that some of those are back open, getting back involved in sports, getting back involved in social activities, meeting up with friends, that can begin to to do some work on that. It's the other anxiety mark that we would have concerns about. Some sound advice there from psychotherapist and author Joanna Fortune from News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. So there are dozens of different non-alcoholic drinks now available. And the latest being added to that market is Guinness Zero Zero. Hi, so uh, my name's John. I'm a beer specialist here at the home of Guinness and Guinness Storehouse. Well, I suppose it's something we've been working on um, for a good few years now. Um, like a couple of years ago, we had Pure Brew, which was one of, it was a non-alcoholic lager. And I suppose that's where the development kind of started. And then it kind of etched its way into you know, zero zero Guinness or zero zero stout. That's something we've been kind of working on over the past couple of years. We've had different trials of that, and then this is the this is the one that's got it across the line. So at the moment, it's being rolled out. You will start seeing it over the next couple of weeks um, in um, off licenses um, all around Ireland, and then you'll also see it in um, pubs um, and restaurants around Ireland as well. And um, we'll be dispensing a slightly different way, so it won't be your can with a ring pull. It's a special can that goes into a special tap unit called Microdraft. Yeah, it's really popular at the moment. Um, the feedback's really, really good. Um, like we have, um, we have, I think, five of them installed in the, in the storehouse, and it's been really, really popular, and it's going down a treat. And I suppose the big question is taste. Does it taste the same as normal Guinness? I'm going to find out shortly, but does it? You, 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 are, you are going to find out, and yes, it does. So um, it's brewed in the same way that Guinness... Um, the Guinness draft is brewed and it's just at the end we'll decide right we're going to remove the alcohol from this beer so essentially it's the exact same ingredients the same roasted barley the same malted barley the same water the same yeast the same hops is all put in it's all fermented as per usual and then at the end we go do you know what this batch here this is going to be the zero zero one so i'm here in the Guinness storehouse i have a blindfold on I'm going to have a half pint of Guinness Zero Zero put in front of me and a pint of normal Guinness to see if I can tell the difference in the taste. Now, there we are. So there is a taste of each. And I'll mix them around a little bit so neither of us know which one is which. So I'll go for one on the left here. They both look like good pints. That's lovely anyway. It tastes like a normal pint of Guinness. Is that the normal pint? Uh, I'll wait till you have the other one and then I'll, then I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> what a tease, John. That's the second pint. Um, yeah. Honestly, I, I don't taste any difference. If I had to choose, I'm going to be completely guessing. Um, I don't even know how to choose which one's Guinness Zero Zero. The one on the left. The one on the left. So the one on the left is Guinness Draft. The one on the right is Guinness Zero Zero. So there you go. I chose, <laughs> I chose the wrong one. But um, you can't... You can't There's definitely no difference. Non-alcoholic beer, non-alcoholic wine, non-alcoholic spirits, non-alcoholic cocktails. There are so many options. But what about the cost? I was in a city centre pub at the weekends and I paid €6 for a bottle of non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, so they're a good bit cheaper. We've um, put our price range for the majority of our cocktails at in and around €8, Euro, um, between 8 and €9. Euro. So it's very reasonably priced there. Um, all the cocktails are made with premium spirits, uh, premium non-alcoholic spirits, I should say, um, which, yeah, really, really good quality um, non-alcoholic spirits. And then the the beers and the wines are in and around two or three euros cheaper than regular uh, alcoholic drink prices. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. Now this week, Future Proof explored why it's hard to break bad habits. Here's Jonathan McRae and neuroscientist Dr. Russell Pildrak. So if, if we're under the spell of this dopamine rush every time we smoke a cigarette or uh, drink alcohol, 
how do we go about breaking those habits? What what are good things and what are what are things that see, sound good but aren't very useful? Yeah. Um, so you know, habits are are sticky, right? And I'll, I go into a lot of detail about the the part of the machinery of why habits are so sticky, um, and we can learn a little bit from from that about how we might try to break them, right? So I think that the one thing that that is pretty clear is that the idea of willpower, it's certainly not a, um, the right way to think about trying to break habits. You know, if you just try hard enough and have strong enough willpower, you're going to break them. There's a lot of research suggesting actually that willpower doesn't really work the way that people think it works. Like when you take people who are thought to have, you know, quote unquote, good willpower or good self-control, they aren't actually any better at sort of, uh, uh, overriding their desires than people who have um, who are thought to have poor self control. <laughs> they seem to be they seem to just have less desires to begin with, or be better at avoiding the things that cause them to have desires. We don't quite know, but um, but it's pretty clear that you know once once the desire is there, it's uh, you know our brains just aren't well set up to uh, to refuse. And so the the best. I think that there's a couple of things that that we know from from science that tell it that you know that, that show us how how to best change habits. One is basically avoiding the triggers for the habits to begin with, right? So if you know that uh, you know whenever you walk into the bar you're going to want to have a cigarette and you really don't want to smoke, then you avoid the bar. Um, things like that, right? So if you if, so you have to think about what are the you have to understand what are the triggers for the habit. And that just requires kind of understanding, you know, one's own mind a little bit, and then doing whatever you can, you know, sometimes it's just not having the thing in the house. Sometimes it's not going to a particular place. Yeah. Um, obviously, or sometimes being around certain people, <laughs> being around certain people, right. And sometimes you can't avoid those things, right? If you, you have a job, and the job involves some sort of, you know, bad habit, but you have to go to work, then another strategy is, um, basically kind of planning in advance how one is going to uh, deal with a situation where they're tempted. So um, psychologists call these implementation intentions. Like what am I, you know, so if I, if I go to work and somebody hands me, you know, somebody hands out a plate of um, cupcakes and says, Hey, would you want a cupcake? Um, yes, please. What do you, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. So the, the question is like, what will you do in that situation? Right. Will you, um, will you, you know, how not, you know, don't just say, Oh, I will say no, but think what exactly will you say to the person? Sorry, I can't have a, a cupcake today because, you know, you know, I'm trying to achieve this goal of, uh, of being healthy or losing weight or whatever, or, you know, some other sort of way that you might try to get out of the situation. But the idea is like, don't wait until it happens to figure out how you're going to deal with it or really plan out like in your mind, like walk through scenarios of how it is you're going to deal with those temptations when they occur. Some fascinating insights there from neuroscientist and author, Dr. Russell Pildrak from Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. And of course, you can tune into Jonathan every Saturday morning from 12 till 1. Before that, go here, we've got to get to something very effing important. We do, because Cathy Sheridan has a very interesting piece in today's Irish Times this morning uh, about how it has become far more socially acceptable to swear these days. Politicians are swearing more. You hear it in TV and radio. But is it time for us to button our lips? What's your view on, on, on swearing, I suppose, in public, Shane? Yeah, I think there's a difference between in private and in public. And obviously, look, I use bad language in, in private. I just, I'm a little wary of how it is crept into to acceptable sort of public discourse, how bad language has, has crept in. I remember, I'm old enough and around long enough to remember Albert Reynolds getting into huge trouble back in, I think it was 1994, so what, like just over 25 years ago, because he said crap. And there was a massive backlash. I mean, if Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin or Mary Lou McDonald said crap now, nobody would bat an eyelid. No. You regularly hear bad language on radio, on television. You regularly hear the F word. I don't really like it. I think it, it's a coarsening of language and it's a coarsening of society. And I just don't think it's a good thing. I know you're right, but I am a small bit sweary, as we both know. Yeah. Uh, and I I mean, I don't I try not to swear on air, but I certainly swear off air relatively frequently. Uh, yeah. And I but think the fact co- that there was a storm a and a teacup about, about Albert Reynolds saying crap was ridiculous. I mean, even 25 years ago, I, 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 if I could remember back that far, I'm sure I would have thought it was ridiculous too. I, I don't really mind the odd you know, 
f bomb or whatever people do. I don't I don't know. I don't like the c words. I I think that's never acceptable. I don't like it on on the public airways. I don't like the f word on the public airways. I don't like when politics I mean the 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 liberal party had a bollocks to Brexit campaign. Uh, like I, I don't like that. Like an Australian party, keep the bastards honest. That was their their slogan. I just think it coarsens debate. I think it's unnecessary. I think bollocks to Brexit kind of summed it up quite well. well it didn't work. Did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. But look, I suppose let us know out there. What do you think? We mm. Shane and I. Off air, do both of us curse quite frequently? But on air, we do try not to, don't we? I think we well, make an effort not to. About standards, is that is that is that too old fashioned to talk like about those standards? Surveys that say if you curse, it means you're you're you know expressive and intelligent. I've clung yeah, to that for years. I don't buy that for a second. <laughs> right. let, let us know five three one zero six for thirty cent or tweet us at NT Breakfast. So I can I can spend five or ten on uh, my four year old phone. Yeah. I can switch this to a bill pay, spend five or ten quid a month, and I'll get whatever you'll gigabytes get, of data almost I exactly need. Almost exactly the same service. Now, this actually the, one of the reasons why this came to mind was somebody contacted me, and there was a small business owner, right? And he happened to have five phones that he'd given to his what employees. What kind of small business was this man running? <laughs> <laughs> they were for his employees. All right, they sorry. weren't his own. So he'd, he'd given out the phones to his employees and obviously he wasn't giving them upgrades every two years, you know, because they didn't need them. They were work phones. They probably had their own phones. And then he realised, he was he did the maths after, like, and he realised that he'd been spending about 500 euros more than he needed to every month on all of the phones for about three or four years and he did the calculations in his head and he's going that's thousands of euros I'm owed back so he really so I wrote about this in the Irish Times and the rea- and you know the, the mobile phone companies say well this is what we do this is you know if you want to change to a different package well we'll facilitate that we'll allow it but if you've signed up to a contract and you've agreed to pay 60 euros a month and you keep paying 60 euros a month well then we're going to keep taking the 60 euros a month now this was supposed to change because again our friends in the European Union or the European Commission introduced this thing called the Electronic Communications Code and that changed the rules and what the electronic communications code did was it said uh, mobile phone companies have to give you 30 days notice that you have, so that when your contract is up, due, due to expire after two years you're supposed to get 30 days notice from them saying by the way you have a right to leave now they're also legally obliged to give you once a year advice on the best tariff you can be on now you can take that with a pinch of salt or not but I mean at least they would have to do something to say to you listen you know that Anton Savage guy he's been paying 100 euros a month we could actually get, give him the same deal for 50 but we're not going to tell him that but at least now they have um, there, there's an obligation to, to tell you that you can be on a better tariff but the difficulty is that um, the Irish government have been very slow to in- enact this legislation they had a deadline of last December to roll out the, the, the legislation to put this into force it hasn't been rolled out yet when I contacted them they say oh yeah we're just you know tweaking it, putting in some dots, crossing some T's, whatever it is. Bottom line is the, the, the legislation isn't there. But the thing is the, rea- the, 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 the mobile phone operators already know that what they have to do. But here's the other cute thing, by the way, and this is how, how they really get us, right? They know how the psychology of stuff works, right? So, you know the way they'll say, we'll give you a hundred free text messages and we'll give you three megabits of data and we'll give you a thousand WhatsApp. And every time a company, be it a mobile phone company or a bank or a life insurance company, every time they add a new thing to the package, we get increasingly bamboozled. And the ESRI had did this really interesting study a couple of years back and they figured that there's only, we can only compute as human beings about three things. Over, like, so, so it might be the rate of interest we're charged, uh, the term of the loan and the total, capi- the total capital repayments. But once they add other things, we start to get confused. And when we're confused, we start making bad decisions or ultimately what we do is we start making no decisions. And we just go, oh, listen, do you know what? I'll just stick with what I have, what I have. And then, of course, the other little tool in their armory of these companies, and it's not just the mobile phone operators, it's all of them, is they just make it so damn difficult for us to contact them. You know, they're communications companies. They should be good at communicating. But, you know, first you have to communicate with the web bots. And like, eh? and what they say? Sorry, I can't help you. I'd like to change to get better deals. Sorry, can't help you with that. Please call our helpline. I talked to a man <laughs> who designs with these web bots some time ago. And he, he said to me that they had something like, he had a term for it, but a one in a 10,000 anomaly human interaction. Uh, how does that work? And he said, well, there are certain sets of phrases that the bot goes this lad's a problem. I need a human. <laughs> so I have developed a technique of just opening with obscenities. 
because it causes humans to engage because the bot goes there's something seriously wrong here that is literally the best piece of advice <laughs> I've had in the last 10 years so anytime I'm in dealing with these people I just start swearing essentially not at them just in, in general in, in a good way exactly in a very positive and, and way and does it work it does yeah humans show up very quickly because the bot gets frightened <laughs> So far, I'm sure the bot will learn. But that's, know, that's way more effective than you know the old people say. Oh, I just press the sales channel. You know, you, you want to make a complaint, you press the sales channel. You think, the oh, I get through to somebody, but they know that's going to happen, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, we can't help you. Can I speak to a supervisor? No, there's no supervisor available. But the bottom line is, they do make all these. They make, they make it difficult for us to communicate with them because they know that if we can't communicate with them, we're just going to give up. The other thing is, and uh, maybe I'm alone in this, I don't understand the ads. Because they offer things like all you can eat data with a bundle of this. And Fair usage policy applies. Yeah, and I attach it to your TV <laughs> and we'll give you a phone. Like, my, the, I got a package recently where it was cheaper to have a landline that I didn't want than not have one. And I just got so confused out of that. I said, OK, just give it to well, me. Well, listen, join the club. I'm actually paying for a landline. I haven't had a physical phone in 15 years <laughs> but I'm still giving a company money or at least it's still part of my package I have to say and I said listen and I've tried it I've but why it doesn't I make don't sense want a landline, lads. I have like no I, I literally know but I don't want a landline please uh, and they were like but it's part of the deal we can't actually uh, t- take that out I was like oh okay and then, but it, it turns out I'm not paying any extra for it it's like a man when he takes out health insurance gets maternity cover Connor Pope and Anton Savage from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy it's literally just helped me get by, like, single mother with two kids. So it's just given me, like, say, if I needed an extra bit of money to get, like, bread or whatever, like, it's just there if I want it, like, you know. I'm renting my own house and I could feed myself and kind of all that stuff. Because renting everything is so expensive in Ireland, I just, I literally could not afford to do it with the full-time job by itself. The income is more like a financial freedom for me. Like, it makes, I don't know, every day feel better. I just feel happy because I know I have money coming in all the time enough to get by and enough to buy some luxuries that I want things that I want to have that I couldn't afford before I was on OnlyFans Danielle, Megan and Emma are all OnlyFans creators who post explicit sexual content on the site to their fee paying subscribers over the past week conversation around the platform has moved from that of adult entertainment to being at the centre of business it came as a shock to the women and men who make a living from posting nudes that the site was going to ban porn due to pressure from banking and payment services. OnlyFans announced that it's going to block all X-rated content starting in October. The, the, what? <laughs> this would be like Playboy only printing the articles, you know what I'm saying? Comedian Jimmy Fallon highlighting the obvious but in a turn of events, OnlyFans has now released a statement saying the proposed changes are no longer required due to banking partners' assurances that OnlyFans can support all genres of creators. Only this week, its founder and chief executive Tim Stokely told the Financial Times that it was down to the unfair treatment by the banks that a ban was on the way. I contacted the banks that he named to see will this U-turn now affect their relationship with the site, but they declined to comment or said they were not commenting publicly on the issue. So what about the creators in Ireland who rely on their intimate pictures and videos making them an income? How has their experience been so far? So my name is Danielle Kennedy and I started in October for three weeks and I finished and then I started again in May. And how has your own OnlyFans experience been? Yeah, I love it. I love it so far. Like, there's so many nice girls doing it. We do daily collabs and all together and stuff, yeah. Just when you say collabs, how explicit do you go? All the way. (laughs) You have to go all the way. That's what people want. Like, it's where the money is, you know? If you're not going to go all the way, then there's absolutely no point in doing it. Like, because they like to see the, the video, like, the details and stuff like that. Custom videos and all and stuff like that, yeah. And people have both fetishes and stuff. You just have to please everyone. There's something on there for everyone. <laughs> and how important is it to you in terms of income? Like, are you, are you making good money out of it? Single mother with two kids, so it's just giving me, like, say, if I needed an extra bit of money to get, like, bread or whatever, like, it's just there if I want it, like, you know? And just when you say you're a mother, would you have concerns for the future when your children grow older and these images are out there online? Um, No, I'm going to bring my kids up to take on the sex industry that it's a job like it's not like there's nothing wrong with doing it like you know what I mean I just think of it I think of it as a way like you're doing it in the bedroom like so why not just record it and get paid for it My name is Megan Sibbs I was on OnlyFans for nearly a year I would say altogether it's probably different for most people I made one kind of because I kept getting my 
nude sent to me as a way to kind of shame me because they were released out my consent years ago. And I had gone into hiding because of it. So I kind of made one and I was like, you can't shame me for this if I do it myself, you know? That was kind of a large part of it for me. It wasn't really about the money at the start. And then I was like, if I'm doing it, go all out, you know? So I only started taking it seriously in the last few months, really. It was a good source of income, I'm sure. Yeah, good enough. I'm not, like, I know that there's people making hundreds of thousands and everything. I wouldn't be there, of course not. What is this uncertainty causing for the creators that use the platform, Megan? Well, it changes daily nearly what they're saying. Now they've changed their stance again and saying that they will suspend the changes, but that's only a suspension. There's still no certainty with anything. I think what's kind of happened is they've kind of realised that everyone's going to leave the platform and we're their main source of income. But we'll just have to see in the coming weeks what happens. They've done this now once. But the thing is, now they've lost a lot of trust in them because what's to stop them doing this again down the line? There's just a real lack of communication and transparency. My name's Emma Briley and I've been doing OnlyFans for about a year. At first it was intense. It was very intense and because I did get some bad reactions from some people. But then after that, it was grand and I made good money and... The money made me feel better and the, the confidence that you get from it makes it worth it, you know, to keep doing it and it gives you the motivation to keep doing it because then you get more confidence and more money. <laughs> it's as explicit as you can be. I do all sorts of videos and requests that fans would ask for. How did you feel when you were told that there was going to be policy changes being introduced? Um. I actually went out and started looking for another job because um, I panicked that much. I didn't know what I was going to do if I lost all that money. And I got a job as a waitress in a gentleman's club. So I, I start that next week. But um, I, it was like a, a moment of, oh, crap. Like, what the hell am I going to do? I, do you know what I mean? I had a plan. And going out, applying for a job in a gentleman's club, it, would that be something you would have done if you weren't no. involved in OnlyFans before? No, 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 no. Definitely not, no. I was trying to think of something... That was just as good as the money on OnlyFans that I could do if OnlyFans was to go. Like So that was the only thing that I could think of. Josh Crosby reporting for The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I'm having a chat with Chris and Isabella. You're on holidays, you're from Sheffield. Uh, England reopened proper a few months ago, all your public transport is at 100%, everything's back to normal. How are you finding it here, the fact that things still are back to normal? Well, to be honest, I think it's I think it's the right thing to do. I think in England we've done things too quickly. It's gone from zero to 100 in a very quick time. So I think, just from our brief experience here, I think things are being done a lot more sensibly. And personally, I think that's that's the right thing to do. Um, do you like safe than being sorry. able to get on a, a train and having some space? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. 100%. Um, I mean, in Sheffield and in London right now, it's just completely busy and it's barely any space to move around or anything. It just doesn't seem safe. And the variant hasn't gone away, it's still there. Still there, and cases are going Rising, up. Yeah. Um, deaths are going up. Um, and I think that's got to be down to the fact that we've just basically opened the floodgates almost. So I had a personal experience where I couldn't even buy a ticket when I went to buy a ticket from the tram so I had to order one online and wait a few a few hours like so you it's had good. to order one online you couldn't even yeah, buy I got a ticket. physically purchase one from the machine. It wouldn't let you. It would only allow me to print off pre-booked tickets. It was kind of in the way of everything. It's good to be back to normal to be honest. Yeah. We've been in this long enough and it's great to be back. Yeah, for me personally, I definitely won't miss the the packed trains having to having to stand up on on rush hour trains. But I found that lately they 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 have been a bit more lenient anyway, so it won't be a huge difference. But it'll be definitely really nice to just have a bit of normality back as well. But yeah, won't miss the having to stand. You won't miss standing up, you know, <laughs> right up against the glass with the condensation. And then the, the train jolts and everyone kind of falls on top of each other. You won't yeah. miss that. Definitely won't miss being crammed against other people. I think it'll be kind of nerve-wracking for some people as well it, when it does go back to full capacity. But it is, it is good to have normality back. Offices are going to completely reopen eventually. Do you think it will be as busy as it was pre-pandemic? Or do you think many will stay at home and perhaps uh, public transport will be all right? 
Yeah, I think it definitely will be better. I think a lot of offices and stuff are going with the hybrid approach to having some people in 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 work and some people at home and likewise with colleges I'm not going back to college until November fully I think so um, lectures are still online for the foreseeable future so there won't be as many students in and out to town so um, I definitely think that it's not going to be as busy as it was pre-COVID. So we've got Boss Aaron behind us there and we can hear that loud engine um, from Wednesday. Would you still get on if it's very busy? I don't see a problem myself, to be honest, because I feel that when they're having matches in Crow Park where everybody is standing side beside beside each other, coming out side beside by each other, I don't see the problem in standing on buses side by side. I think it's time to sort of get things back on the road again. We've been vaccinated. We've been vaccinated. Okay, I think the vaccination apparently is not working with the Delta, but we still have been vaccinated and we can't just stop our lives altogether. It's ridiculous. Henry McKean reporting. On Sunday, Talking History explores the history of Paris. Here's Patrick Egan, an author and historian, Dr Andrew Hussey. It's sometimes seen as a city of light, sometimes as a city of darkness, and there are those contrasts in how it's viewed. Yeah, I'm very careful about sort of anything that says city of contrast because that's like one of the biggest cliches in travel writing or history writing that you can ever come across. I would replace that with something like Paris is a, a, a load of interlocking different atmospheres. And when I first came to Paris, it wasn't to look for the beautiful, romantic, um, you know, 19th century version of the city or 18th century version of the city. I came to buy records in the northern part of the city because I was in a band in Liverpool and we wanted to buy the coolest records that no one in Liverpool had got. So I went to the North African district of Barbes and I suddenly fell in love with something that didn't even seem European at the time. And that's what started me off really on the journey to, to sort of discovering French literature and, and discovering the excitement, which I still think is very much alive in Paris. And I think one of the, I'll just finish with, with another cliche. I think one of the cliches of, of Paris is the, that it comes from the Anglo-American world, is that it's, it's somehow a museum. It's kind of like, you know, it's lost in the past. Well, I've lived in Paris for the past 15 years, and it's, it's definitely not a museum. It's actually a living component part, uh, very much so, of the uh, 21st century. Well, Andrew, I love the shooting down of the cliches and maybe that's one of the problems that we have when we when we take on a subject like the history of Paris that there are all of these cliches and sometimes they're so dominant like, for example, the idea of it being the most romantic city in the world and we have the image of the Eiffel Tower in so many programmes and movies set in Paris that sometimes the cliché overshadows, I suppose, the history and the reality. Yeah, but I mean, I mean that that that's that that's always going to happen in in the world of globalisation and mass tourism, and it's a kind of Disneyfication of of the city. Having said that, Paris was always, you know, from the Middle Ages onwards, it was always a kind of, uh, you know, a place for pilgrims to go to, for scholars to go to. It was a magnet across Europe, and it wasn't, you know, just simply a French phenomenon. So, in a sense. Um, you know, I'm using this phrase, the society, the spectacle, which I've borrowed from one of my favorite French theorists, which is Guy Debord, when he talks about the image replacing the reality. I think it's much more exciting in Paris to get beyond the, the cliches, to get beyond the image and get to the reality, which is often a lot scuzzier, but more exciting than people think. Terrific stuff there from Dr. Andrew Hussey from Talking History with Patrick Gagan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 to 8. OK, I'm going to leave you with now an interesting dilemma from So You Think You're an Adult. Here's Sean Moncrief, Declan Buckley and the wonderful Amanda Bruckner. Have a great weekend. Right, uh, next question, another gay one. Uh, ever since my husband and I got married a year ago, <laughs> I find myself not dressing up quite as much as I used to. He buys me lingerie and encourages me to wear it, but I honestly just feel more comfortable in my PJs. After a romantic meal, he often suggests that I pop on the thong and bra he likes, 
but I hate getting out of my cosy socks and leisure pants. <laughs> that doesn't mean I have become less sexual. It simply means I don't feel sexual looking like a Victoria's Secrets model. I can still have sex wearing my pyjamas, can't I? <laughs> You're conflicted, man. Take off the the pyjamas, but leave on the leisure socks. (laughs) Listen, we've all done it with the socks on. You know, and we've all, you know, I I shouldn't, I hate when people say, you know, you know, that drives me nuts. Um, But I'm sorry, they're only married a year. Yeah. It's like, come on, if sex is already such an effort after a year, you could be heading for trouble. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have very little time for sex in my life at the moment. <laughs> um, just life is too busy. Life is life is constantly going. I've I've teenagers in the house. There's stuff to do, and like it getting into the whole Victoria's Secrets lingerie is a bit of a production, and you don't always feel like it. You definitely don't feel like it after a big meal. I always suggest sex yeah. before dinner. That's just you know. If it's going to be on the it's table. A kind of an hors d'oeuvre. Yes, yeah. that's nice. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. just, you know. Nibbles. You're yeah. never going to have sex after dinner. It's just like. Yeah, um, but you see, you don't have to be having sex if you're hungry. Uh, yeah, so there's Because then your mind is elsewhere. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how many times you say you're doing great, you're thinking of the Big Mac at the end of it. Somebody say just eat. I get it. And there was a time when, you know, when the kids were smaller, my husband would actually have to take me to a hotel to get the annual ride. Yeah. You know, so, and it, you really had to kind of plan it properly because it was like going, you'd like a couple of drinks. But then if you had too many drinks, he wanted to keep drinking. Mm, and then it was yeah, kind of like yeah. going, and then it would be like the next day. And then it's like, oh, we have to better Get do this now. before. Yeah. yeah, you know. So it is it is tricky. But if you're, you really got to make an effort. But isn't that the, isn't that the kind of balance that this woman is talking about? Is that there's a balance <laughs> between the big production and the planned kind of um, um, coition and the uh, and, and the kind of random it just happens because, you know, you got a bit frisky while we were watching Love Island. I know, but you need to be a little bit spontaneous. And like, if you're one of these people who's putting the PJs on as soon as you come home from work and you're only, if you're a year married, I'm... I'm making a, a great generalization. I'd say they probably don't have children. Mm. So like this is the time to get it in. Yeah. You know, life gets harder, life gets busier. Okay, there's a pun fest there in that last <laughs> sentence. Uh, the thing is, no, I mean maybe she just doesn't like dressing up. No, she's no problem uh, uh, with having sex uh, as yeah, much that's, as you like. A, it's she, just she, the she was quite, up thing. She was quite pointing that out actually that it was like I just don't want to dress up in that version of woman that the man I, finds I guess, but the thing is she has met her husband she knows what he likes <laughs> yeah. it's like um, yeah. it's not a blind date so yeah, unfortunately it's not just about her it's about him and their relationship so unfortunately you sometimes have to put a bit of effort into a relationship and sometimes put a bit of effort into having sex you're absolutely right it's like putting putting on your suit when you go to work exactly it's, kind of, it's you know, not just all about yeah you and like I mean if you're going to get at, there will be a time when you're just kind of like going you know, oh no I can't even go down this road because it's just too vulgar for afternoon radio <laughs> yeah. but like I mean there is just kind of like going will you settle for yeah we know <laughs> where you're going with that yeah you know, that's fine Yeah, and that's fine yeah. but it's kind of like I, going, I, I, I must <laughs> When you start haggling, it takes the fun out of it. <laughs> Will you at least just hold it? <laughs> you know. Like, just hold it while I cry. Yeah, yeah exactly. You. But like, I mean, we'll all get to that stage. But like, make a little bit of an effort. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade. They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.